0: Timothy chapter 5 today. This is a bit of a tricky passage. It's tricky because it's not politically correct for the year 2022 and that's not my problem. I'll just say that up front. My goal, so a couple of Greek words for you, exegesis and eisegesis. Those of us who were Bible college students need to look Eisegesis is reading into the text what we wish it said Exegesis is pulling out of the text what the author meant Isegesis, at least where I went to school is a bad word <laughs> um, the goal is not to make the Bible say what I want it to say the goal is to get from the from what Paul and Peter and everybody else, God ultimately, what they wanted to tell us. And whether or not it's popular in today's culture doesn't matter. I would rather preach what Paul and Peter and the rest meant and have zero people attend church than to grow the church and have it be a popular message but not have it match what God wants. And so, tricky passage, may not be a popular message, but I don't care. I want I, All I care about is what does the text say. So with that said, 1 Timothy chapter 5, just the first couple of verses to start us off. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So this segues us into what we're getting ready to talk about. And Paul is going to go into a little greater detail in a couple of areas that need some specific focus, presumably for what the church in Ephesus was going through. Uh, The church is not a business or a club, and it's certainly not the government. The church is a family. This is how the church is to operate, not just as any old community, but the church is to be a family. And so then Paul is going to go into a, little, into a little bit more detail for a couple of groups that need specific focus, and he's going to focus on widows and elders. Widows are, in many ways, back then, the, the mothers of the church. The elders are certainly uh, seen as father figures. And so, speaking as speaking about mothers and fathers within the church uh, it, it's sort of looking like two ends the The two extremes we know from Acts chapter six that the widows in the church had a tendency to be overlooked. They were in some ways at the bottom of the ladder the The bottom rung of the ladder uh, uh, the older ladies in the church with no family left who were easily dismissed. And in many ways, the elders were, God given, the leadership of the church. And and in this chapter, Paul kind of flips the ladder and says, here's how we elevate uh, these women in the church that are being overlooked. And for elders, he says, here's how elders are to be servants of the church. Um, This is, this is how those on top, and I, and I put that in quotes for a reason, those on top are to serve. Uh, this is how we f- make sure that those on the bottom don't stay on the bottom. The church, if this is a priesthood of all believers, if this is the bride of Christ and the family of God, there shouldn't be a top and a bottom. Should there? I mean, we're we're all equal in Christ. And it's easy to fall into this where some people are seen as higher than others, and some people get overlooked. And I appreciate that Paul addresses that. These are the problem areas. The women now, the problem areas also, though, being he talks about which women need help and which don't, which elders are serving as they should, and which are serving serving for their own uh, uh aggrandizement for for their own selfishness. Paul was writing to Timothy to tell him how to work with these two groups in particular in this chapter. But but I think that these are principles that, that we can all learn from, and we can apply not just to the Ephesus church back then, but now to all of us. Uh, if unless God is leading It's easy to get confused about these issues, and that's why we need each other. So with that said, 1 Timothy 5, verse 3. A bit of a long passage on this. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow, who is really in need and left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead, even while she lives. Give the people these instructions, too, so that no one may be open to blame. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Not only do they become idle, idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry to have children, to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her family, she should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. Goodness, Paul, that's about as politically incorrect as you can probably get. Um, So to give some context, which I think will help us, um, maybe maybe common sense context, but just in case, F- some, some background that we should go over. The first, uh, keeping in mind, back then, guys got married when they could afford a wife, and women got married at a childbearing age, and those ages are not the same, um, Average age, as I have read again and again, I can't prove this because it's 2,000 years later, but from what we understand, guys tended to get married when they were around the age of 30. Women tended to get married when they were around the age of 15. That's just what I've heard. And and I read this just the other day. um, Even only 200 years ago, the average life expectancy was in the 40s. And And we say that because there was so much childhood mortality back then that that affected what the average age was, but certainly in biblical day, no hospitals and the modern medicines and penicillin and all this stuff for for guys for anybody to live past the age of forty, forty five was pretty unusual. And so if women were getting married at fifteen and guys were getting married at thirty, and on average, maybe forty forty five was was life expectancy. There was, back in biblical days, something of an epidemic of widows. Unmarried women who were widowed at the age of maybe 30. Uh, I I suspect that there is a reason that that, that once we read about, uh, uh, after Jesus' childhood, once we read about Mary, we never read about Joseph again. We we read about Mary, we never read about Joseph, and, and... I am convinced because there's no excuse. When Mary goes and and, and Jesus's brothers go to get him and bring him home, there, I Joseph, I I am convinced Joseph would have gone with her if if he thought that if he was still around. Um, this was a common problem back then. So widows, and we read this in Acts six, widows in the church were a problem. We don't read about widowers because they didn't exist that much uh, comparatively. Widows would have been an epidemic in the church back then. More so than today. And the second thing, which again is really obvious, there was no social security back then. It was not the government's problem to take care of people in need. The government didn't do that back then. That's what family did. But what happens if you have no family? And so that's, that's the background that just was. You, you can say, oh, how dare they back then? That's not our problem. We can't fix that. This is just the world that, that, that God through Paul was writing in. There were a lot of widows in the church, and they weren't being taken care of uh, because there was no program to take care of them. Uh, It was a very different world back then. This is where the church was to shine. The church could set an example for how God's perfect family, not perfect because we're perfect, but a perfect plan The Bible gives the perfect plan for God's family. Uh, That's where the family of God should shine. But I also think that Paul is very, very clear on a few things, isn't he? Those in need are to be taken care of, and we all recognize that's different than those in want. There are things that we need. There are things that we want. And in the year 2022, in the very affluent country of the United States of America, so many Americans get needs and wants wrong. And we get them confused. Uh, Just just like now, the world was full of people who wanted money, um, but but at the same point uh, uh, don't want to work for it. And the world had that problem back then, and the world has this problem now that there are people that want money, but they don't intend to work for it. Uh, there, There were widows that were in honest need, and Paul, using the example of gossip, there were women who weren't in need and were busy doing other things. Widows that were too old to work and raise a family. Widows that were young. Remember, there's that under 60 number. Widows that were young enough that they could still be industrious. Still young enough to get remarried. Paul says to take care of the real needs. And, and then specifies also when, the fam- when their own families can't that wasn't every every widow at the age of 60 was suddenly supported by the church. No, it was the widows who were over 60 who didn't have family. It's an, Paul is very clear on this. It is the job of all Christians to look after their own family first and not make that somebody else's problem. Now, in cases of the widows who didn't have family and who were part of the church and were still in need then that was where the church was was to help out. And again, I remind you that this was in a world that didn't have social security. That doesn't mean that the church can't help people out, but we also do have some programs in place to help people in need, part of what our taxes go for, Right? Paul's instructions were important because this was the section of the church back then that was the most overlooked. Again, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles are made aware that this is the portion of their church that is being overlooked and they have to take special steps to take care of this. Timothy, as a young man, will have an easier time ministering to guys than he, and, and, and even more so, guys his own age than women who are older. And so Paul has to give him some special instructions. So we have this this pretty large section of scripture devoted to telling Timothy to make sure that this portion of the church isn't overlooked. Um, there, there are a couple of lessons that I think that we need to take out of this passage. Um, the first, take care of your families. right? I, I think Paul is very clear. I don't think that this is contextual just to back then. We should take care of our own families. Uh, it's the Christian thing to do. It's important. Um, it's a good witness to our to our world. And the second thing, the church needs to look after those in true need. I do think that. It's a spiritual matter. Uh, now, I do think that Paul is clear that there are those who are not in true need and they may come to the church and ask for, for uh, uh, funds or something like that or help when maybe they, that they don't need it. And Paul is very clear on... Don't let people take advantage of the church. Uh, Those who can be industrious, who can work, don't need to take advantage of the church um, and take the funds away from the church when when that could go to people who are in legitimate need. There there are people that are in legitimate need and there are people that are not and and the church needs to have that discernment to know the difference. Um, I do think that that's why Paul gives that 60 years and older, and, and, gives, and gives all sorts of qualifications for being put on, on a list of, of widows. Uh, they, they had an official list, and, and there were qualifications. It wasn't just everybody that came and said, I'm in need. This is, today, I pray that the church can still shine as an example of compassion to those in need and set an example for the world of what God's family should look like. And so, we transition... From how the church was to take care of widows, we transition to a conversation about the elders. So look with me at verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain and... The worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality to do nothing out of favoritism. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands And do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourselves pure. Stop drinking only water. Use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Okay. I think it's safe to say that verses 3 through 16 are about widows. It's a passage that has a continuous thread about one subject. I think 17 through 23 are about elders. Um, Paul was an amazing writer. He was not haphazard. In his writing, like some of us can be, uh, I, I am, when I was a child, so, so most of us have grown up in, in the most incredible transitionary age that I will not be able to convince my daughter of. Um, I have noticed on Wednesday nights that when we talk about the, the old days, my, my kids on Wednesday night... They do not know the difference between the 1920s and the days of Abraham. They are they are all pre technology, and it all blurs together. The days before cars is just ancient history, and and my daughter even more so will will be in that that category. Probably, and she struggles with this. Um, when when I, I remember when I was a kid, my my, my parents got Pong, which was this video game console with two knobs, and it was a ping-pong game that was just a square that bounced across between two lines on a TV screen, and we were hot stuff in the neighborhood. We were, we were hot, and that giant, big old thing sat on an ottoman that was shaped like a turtle, and I, re- and I remember this from my childhood. And then my grandfather gave us this, this computer. Now, modern day... Heaven's sakes, my my cell phone can do infinitely more than what this Commodore 64 with a cassette drive could do. I had a game called The Temple of Apshi, and it took two hours on a cassette drive to load. And I loved that game. And I looked forward to Saturday when I had time to load it. Um, And that that was when I was in junior high. So pre-junior high, we didn't have a computer. And so now, I'm just spoiled, rotten with computers. Because I can type stuff and then and type it mercilessly wrong and then hit backspace which is my most worn out key on my, on my computer because I, I type things poorly and then retype it and autocorrect lets me know when i get words spelled wrong um and, which which is good cuz i usually get the word the spelled wrong when i'm typing too quick uh and 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 what what a joy and and frankly even before we had computers Bick made those pens that had erasers. What a brilliant! I mean, not only did pencils have, they had pens with erasers. What an amazing concept! And paper was cheap. My my child will not will grow up in this world that 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 she doesn't remember. I mean, doesn't remember those days when we did it. We did writing by hand as much. Um, you know, they're not teach. I, we had to learn how to count change, right? They don't, don't teach kids that anymore. The computer the Cash the register, and your your you know self. It's more important for kids to learn how to use the calculator than it is to do it on paper. Almost these days, I don't remember. Maybe, maybe nobody. Paper's been cheap for a long time. It wasn't in the days of Paul. Papyrus was a big deal. Writing. There were no erasers. Writing was a big deal that people took very seriously. And carefully, and in a day before printing press, when everything needed to be written by hand, writing was a big deal. There was no whiteout. You didn't flippantly write stuff and say, oh, I might have got that wrong. So I do believe that Paul was terribly meticulous, terribly careful about what he wrote. And he didn't just flippantly write words on a page. Because paper wasn't cheap and you couldn't afford to do that. So with all of that then said... Um, his words may feel a little disjointed in what we just read. It may feel like he's talking about lots of subjects. I actually think that it is a little more focused maybe than we give it credit. And if we look at the context of elders and look at what he wrote with that lens, I think some things jump out at us. First, I would say it's okay to pay the preacher, just bluntly put. When he says that the elder who preaches and teaches well... um, is worthy of double honor. He then says the worker is worth his wages. I, I think that that's pretty blunt. I don't think that there's any subtle context to this. the The double honor is the title. He's an elder, and two, he gets paid. I, I think that that's the double honor that we're talking about both both the title of being an elder and the payment. Um, and I and I I think that that's I think that's the most obvious reading out of the context. Paul has already talked about elders in chapter 3, but now he's specific on a class of elders that run the church well and preach and teach well. Uh, What I read out of this is that the preacher is part of the team. Uh, There's a danger in treating, and so many churches do this. I'm grateful you guys don't. Uh, So many preachers are treated as an employee, And when things aren't going well, that's fine, we'll hire somebody new. Um, It's hard for the preacher to feel like this is his church home if he feels like he's just an employee and they'll get rid of him when things go, go poorly. It's kind of hard to dig your feet into the community and dig your feet into the church and treat the church as your family when you know that you're not family, you're an employee, and they're going to get rid of you. It is a caution to all churches, don't treat the preacher like an employee, treat him like part of the team, part of the family. You guys do this. I want to be very clear on this. That's not an that's not uh, As we're putting sermons on, on, on uh, the internet, uh, that's, that's an encouragement for others. And I would say keep up the good work. I appreciate that you have made Pamela and I uh, and Calypso, this feels like our home. It is our home. We love it here. We're part of the team, and we appreciate that very much. Um, like, like all elders, the preacher is not to work for his own interests. We all work for God, don't we? So the second thing then that I notice, because church leadership is so important, um, Paul then goes on to say, don't entertain accusations flippantly against the elders. There are churches that have been held hostage by anonymous uh, accusations. Um, If I were to get, we've got our mailboxes over there, if somebody were to leave in an envelope a complaint and not sign it, and then the next week I got a complaint and the next week I got a complaint to the next I wouldn't treat that as you know four or five different people complaining it might just be the same person right um th- there is a danger in anonymity this is especially true I, uh, if ever it's even more true than biblical days in a day of internet when people can leave email, anonymous emails and and burner accounts and twitter and facebook and all of these days when we hide behind our keyboards and we're not Held accountable for what we say, you can. If we only listen to the negative, there's a real danger in being held hostage by by complaints that people don't own. Um, any person can complain about anything, right? Especially in today's day and age. And the church dare not be held. If elders are people that God has chosen and have been tried, we go back to chapter three, just a couple chapters earlier, if they have been carefully chosen for their Christ-like qualities, we shouldn't entertain flippant accusations against them. Those should be kind of water off the duck's back. Now, Paul is clear. If there's more than one accusation, yeah, that's fine. Deal with that. Absolutely. But one disgruntled person versus the reputation of an elder, hopefully the elder has already proven that they're Above reproach, and so paul is clear don't don't let disgruntled uh, accusations from from one person here or there paralyze the church don't don't entertain that um, but because they are leaders, accusations from multiple people do deserve specific attention because they are the leadership of the church and so this creates something of a contradiction just within this chapter if we're honest paul opens with don't rebuke an older man harshly and then but elders if they're caught up in in sin and there are multiple accusations that come in against them and it's proven true deal with it publicly so here's an example then to try to balance this out i know of a church uh that years ago, the elders found out that the preacher was caught up in some immorality. Um, And the elders made what turned out to be, I'll be honest, a poor decision. In an effort to spare him dignity and not air dirty laundry, they just quietly kind of fired him behind the scenes. Now, that might sound on the surface, well, we don't want to make a big deal out of this. We don't want to advertise this to the community. Let him him retire... Get rid of him quietly in the background and we'll get a new preacher and he can go his way. Well, because they didn't make that public, he went off and and started a new church and took a chunk of the church with him. Only for those people then, unfortunately, who were misled two years later to find out what was going on and then they had to fire him. It was a terrible, ugly church split over the fact that had the elders followed what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 and told people this is why we're doing this, they probably could have dodged a lot of that um, when leadership this is why leader i i don't want to say that only crazy people are 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 volunteer to be church leaders but i i there is there is a level of responsibility and stress and and you are on something people are people are looking at the preacher and the elders to set the example and so there's a, that added responsibility means that there has to be some accountability. Um, you have to be willing to be under the spotlight. Some people might call that a special kind of crazy. I think that if you're living a Christ-like life, I don't think it's crazy. You just recognize that that's an added responsibility, and you examine yourself and say, am I willing to do this? That doesn't mean that elders are always going to get it perfect. But we also recognize there's a difference between losing your temper and, say, a gross sin that destroys the reputation of the church. Now, keeping in mind that we're talking about elders, then I want to look at these last three verses that we looked at. Um, number one, Paul says, "I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect, um, and the elect angels, to keep these instructions without partiality. Do nothing out of favoritism. No favoritism. No picking your favorites. This applies to elders. Don't get. Uh, uh, it's not about the elders getting their way. Elders." are not the good old boys club they're not to be that they they don't rule the church the temptation might be to make the elders the elite of the church uh, to look up at them at the top but the head of the family is still god not the elders Uh, it's not about the elders getting their way so no favoritism specifically in context of the elders I, and I think that that's a fair warning for Timothy. This isn't about you, Timothy, picking your best friends, and you're the council of elders, and you're gonna, you're going you guys are gonna get your way. Then verse twenty-two, uh, and again, we read this before. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. What does that mean? Like healing? No, laying on of hands for elders. The choosing. That's that's how elders are chosen in the New Testament. The laying on of hands, and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Um, don't be hasty in choosing elders. Make sure that you choose the right people, the right guys for the job. Elders are to be above reproach. You won't have these problems we talked about earlier if you pick the right people and don't hastily uh, rush through it. When the world sins, the elders should be set apart from that and above that. The integrity of the elder is, is the most important aspect in choosing elders. And then verse 23, this may, not, this may just seem like this verse out of nowhere. But verse 23, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Okay, it's an odd verse in the midst of this eldership thing. But, and, and, and what makes it a little bit odder is when we go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, when we talk about the qualifications of elders, we say not given to drunkenness. All right, um, don't, don't be drunk. Timothy, make sure you drink a little bit. little contradictory, even within the same book. Okay, I, 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 th- I think the short version is, Timothy, don't be a drunk, but, but there's a legalism here. I, I have known a few Christians that won't use NyQuil because it has alcohol in it. Now, if you want to make that decision for yourself, that's fine. NyQuil, NyQuil is liquid gold. When I'm sick, that stuff is is pure bliss uh, to help me sleep through a cold and all the other things that are are wrong at life um, when when I'm sick. It's medicinal. I don't drink NyQuil for pleasure. Um, Timothy, back in, again, our pre-medicine days, a little bit of wine. Don't be legalistic. A little bit of wine to help you out with your medical need. Um, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking. And they said he was crazy. Jesus turns water into wine, and apparently very good wine, as they said, "Boy, you save the best stuff for last." Um, I, I think, Paul's point, is a caution. I, I like the example of, and and, and again, we live in a different day than then. I like the example of Pastor Thomas Welch, a name worth remembering if you think about it you'll know where i'm going pastor thomas welch thought wouldn't it be neat if communion wasn't about alcohol and so he invented this pasteurization process for uh, uh grape juice that kept it from becoming uh alcohol when when pasteurized and left out of time and and now we have welch's grape juice and and welch's grape juice exists because of Pastor Thomas Welch wanting a communion that wasn't about alcohol. Throughout the Bible, we see "Don't get drunk." That's not the purpose of coming together for the Lord's supper or any time. The Bible is very clear: Don't get drunk. That doesn't mean you can't have al- you, you you can't have Nyquil because of the alcohol content in the Nyquil. Um, I think in this case, Paul's caution is Timothy: Don't be legalistic about all all of this. I don't want to read into the text more than is there. I don't want to read in less than is there. Bible is very clear. Don't get drunk. And that's where it ends. Um, we, I think it's a call against legalism on, on that. And, and again, we do live in different day back then. Back then in a day before refrigerators, um, all grape juice tended to turn into wine. And we see that Jesus turned water into wine. I'm grateful that we live in a day when i can go buy grape juice and i don't have to buy it with the alcohol in it and thus save myself that concern when the bible says don't get drunk i'm grateful that we live in that day and age um, these days when people make alcohol it's on purpose uh, and, and back then any, any any drink of fruit fermented and became alcohol i'm grateful that we live in a day when, when i don't have to worry about that elders here's the point of this passage elders are to be men of respect elders are called to live up to the call and that's what we're called that's what elders are called to do now as we finish this up i want to skip ahead to chapter 6 briefly and then we'll come back and pick up the two verses we missed chapter 6 all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that god's name and our teaching May not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they're brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. Again, we've got this passage that might make us uncomfortable. It seems like Paul is not saying abolish slavery. He's saying, here's how Christian slaves are to act. Why wouldn't he abolish slavery? Well, praise God that slavery is abolished today that we live in a world where slavery is gone we've still got to work right we we use the phrase wage slave to talk about the fact that monday morning rolls around and we have to force ourselves to go to work you hate work on monday morning that's normal You're, work is work because it's not pleasant sometimes we might feel like slaves and i think that this can apply to employees treat your bosses with respect I think that's an easy application, especially if your boss is a fellow Christian. Treat your boss with respect. Don't take advantage of them. When one Christian takes advantage of another Christian's generosity or faith, that's a tragedy. Let us be the best of employees as witnesses to the unbelievers, to our brothers and sisters. When we apply this to employees and even employers, I think that this becomes a pretty straightforward passage. All right, I said I was going to pick up verses uh, 24 and 25 as we close. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. We talk about all men. Anthropos is our word, so it means men and women, uh, all mankind. Our good deeds should be obvious. First Thessalonians 5.22 says, in the NIV it says avoid every appearance of evil, but I don't like that translation. The Greek word morphe, um, if something morphs, it transforms, it changes. The New King James Version says avoid every form of evil, and that's a far better translation. Um, uh, avoid not the appearance of evil, because if I avoid the appearance of evil, I could be sinning behind the scenes and you just don't notice it. Avoid being transformed into evil. How do we do that? we be Christ-like. Not, not just for appearance, but all the time, we are like Jesus. Our hymn of, our hymn of invitation today is hymn number 442. Be like Jesus. This is it, Again, this is a tough passage to get through, and there are a lot of difficult contextual verses that apply somewhat back then, and it's kind of hard sometimes to pull these out from back then and, and apply them in modern day, and yet we don't want to make it say what we want to say, We want to know what Paul, what God through Paul, wants to tell us today, whether or not it's popular, but I think that chapter 5, as so much of the Bible can be summed up in as be like Jesus when you interact with the church, follow Christ, not just in name, but in in all our actions. Um, If we're not Christian, then it's hard to be like Jesus because that's... The, the first thing about being like Jesus is becoming a Christian. If you're not a Christian, I definitely want to talk with you about what that means. Um, it's also easy to call ourselves Christian in name only. But so much of what we've been reading, as we've been reading through 1 Timothy, has been not just what we call ourselves, but what we do as the church. And this is not always easy. It's not always natural. It's not just something that intuitively comes to us. If anything, when I read through 1 Timothy... There's some hard work to this at times. It doesn't come natural, and that's why we study this. Um, If you have a decision to make for Christ, I want to talk with you about that. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.